Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Artificial intelligence is a revolution that is unfolding right before our eyes. Yeah, and at lightning speed, the newest forms of AI technology are being adopted faster than any previous form of consumer tech. The AI platform ChatGPT reached over 100 million active users within two months of being released. Consumers have used it to write essays, uh, take tests, crack jokes, and write poetry in response to questions or prompts. It's kind of an amazing technology. Yeah, uh, with some pros and cons that we'll get into. What questions should we be asking about new forms of artificial intelligence? Should we be scared, excited, maybe a little bit of both? We look at the impact of AI on human behavior with Nate Fast. Should we be alarmed at the speed of this? I don't think we should be alarmed, although it's totally understandable that a lot of people are. I think we should be cautious and uh, we should be careful, but we should be kind of eager to, to understand and learn about this new technology. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So this episode comes hard on the heels of our last show when, Jim, you raised concerns as a working journalist about chat GPT and generative AI. Uh, before our interview, uh, let's explain what we mean by some of these rapidly changing and, and pretty new terms that the world is talking about. Uh, first, what is generative AI or generative artificial intelligence? Well, one thing that's nice about the AI field is a lot of the terminology is actually pretty clear. It actually describes what's going on. So generative AI is simply a super powerful computer platform that has been fed a lot of information and then uses that to generate new content. It could be generating original text as opposed to finding or quoting existing text or are scraping through millions of pictures that it's seen and stored and creating new images based on prompts that you give it. The prompts or the questions that you give it are, are what it then responds to, right? Yes. So what do we mean by the phrase a uh, large language model? A large language model is a way of basically feeding information to one of these AI systems. This, the system itself is a complex form of, of a computer system or network, really, sometimes known as neural networks that are organized, in theory, a little bit like the human brain. And the, what the model does is it takes uh, a ton of text. In the case of ChatGPT, just tons of stuff that's been on the internet in this, over the years. And the system looks in particular at how words are grouped together. So if, if you give it a word, 
it's going to try to search its database for what kinds of words often appear before this word and what kind of words often appear after this word. So you can think of it a bit like the autocomplete function on your phone or you know in your email program. It makes a pretty good guess what the next couple of words are likely to be. Well, if you put that on steroids, that's what ChatGPT does. So how does generative AI differ from what we've had for years now, which is, you know, you go, you go on and you ask Google a question or, or you uh, go to uh, YouTube and you go, how to, how to tie a bow tie or, or something <laughs> like that, where you just ask a basic question. How is yeah. this different? It's really different in ways that I think that we need to be aware of. Google's secret sauce, when it became the dominant uh, search engine in the early days of the internet, was it made it makes a real attempt to rank information by usefulness, not necessarily accuracy, but is this an explanation of how to tie a, a bow tie that a lot of people have found useful? Did they get to the website and then stick with it or did they link to it? That's very different from searching through the kinds of things people have said about bow ties then recreating a somewhat original version of that. Now, in the case of that question, ChatGPT would probably give you something pretty accurate. But in the case of certain questions, it might not. Or if there's no, if you can't find something like what you're asking for, it might just make it up. Yeah, that's amazing. We'll get into that. Um, let's go next to our interview. Uh, Nathaniel Fast is a professor of management and organization at the USC Marshall School of Business. His specialty is studying how technology is used in the workplace, how people interact with it, but also how technology changes us in the course of those interactions. Nate spoke with us from his home in Los Angeles. Nate Fast, welcome to How Do We Fix It? Well, thank you. Great to be here. So I'm going to start this interview with a long question. It's kind of gym length, <laughs> which is that I, I'm kind of struck by one of the crucial differences between today's technology revolution and others, such as the invention of the printing press back in the 1400s and the Industrial Revolution that began in the 18th, they happened really slowly. And I think people had no idea what the impacts were going to be. This one with generative AI is happening very quickly. Should we be alarmed at the speed of this? I don't think we should be alarmed, although it's totally understandable that a lot of people are. I think we should be cautious and uh, we should be careful, but we should be kind of eager to, to understand and learn about this new technology. And I think what's interesting is like throughout history, um, people have basically lived in the same world, perhaps. And so like change at the most would happen once in a lifetime. And I think we're experiencing change where it feels like the world is a fundamentally different place more than once in our lifetime, maybe two or three times. And when I'm talking to college students, they're already kind of feeling like the world has been changing, um, you know, it's a different one than the one they were born into. And so when you know that these young, you know, people are experiencing this kind of um, stress, you can bet that the, the pace is really fast. So I don't think we should be alarmed, but I think we should be, you know, cautious, excited, and um, really motivated to understand uh, this change that we're in the midst of. 
As a journalist and a longtime magazine editor, you know, I've lived through a lot of these changes in my career and watched the disruption of some traditional models of journalism. A lot of the disruptions were were good. Certainly people have much more access to information, but we also saw some things that none of us predicted. I think, you know, when Facebook and Twitter came out, most people welcomed this as a wonderful way to build connections and a sense of community. And I don't think too many people predicted the divisiveness that a lot of us would experience. So as we look at AI, I think it's the the outlook from most, a lot of people isn't so optimistic. Maybe people are being unnecessarily pessimistic, but people immediately jump to some of the most dystopian or kind of science fiction interpretations of, of, of what could go wrong, including some AI scientists. Where do you come down on this? I think we're right to be concerned. And when you think about social media, we, we certainly didn't expect this to be a big problem. You know, this is just a fun way to connect with friends. But social media actually became our first widespread experience of artificial intelligence. And it was a very simple form of artificial intelligence, dictating which is the next thing that should show up on our feed. Um, but as we now know, you know, that can extrapolate into like, you know, polarization and the spread of misinformation and things like that. So in what ways in the next few years could our lives change as a result of AI? Well, I think that's a, that is the question. It's a good question. And um, I don't think we have the answers yet for it, but it, it certainly will change. Um, it'll change the ways that we do our work. Univer I'm in a university and so universities all over the place, including my own business school. We just had a faculty, large faculty meeting to kind of grapple with this and like, how are we going to use this as a tool to actually enhance our, our teaching rather than kind of be worried about it, but like how, we do have to be on top of it. Um, so the workplace is going to be changing. One thing I do think that a lot of people are, are, are worried about and with good reason is, is the trust in information. So we tend to kind of trust when we do a Google search, we trust that whatever we find is going to be kind of accurate or useful. With these models, it's not how they work, right? And so they, they do hallucinate and they also can at scale put out a lot of different perspectives, maybe misinformation, but, but other stuff as well. And I think um, people are going to have a difficult time trusting the sources. of. I think it will actually has the potential to kind of further undermine some of the trust that we have in, in the media. Yeah, Jim, you alluded to that in, in the last podcast episode we did when you talked about uh, using AI to look up some speeches. Right. I'm writing an article and I wanted to find out what some various uh, advisors to the Biden administration said about environmental justice. And I threw in some key words and I asked uh, ChatGPT to look up some uh, some stuff, you know, some articles or, or interviews they'd done. I tried this with maybe 15 different experts, and I got back a host of really promising-looking articles and legitimate outlets like Slate or Scientific American, and they were all fake. And it, But it generated these really realistic URLs that would bring you to Scientific American or Slate, but just the article that it was describing just simply didn't exist. That, to me, is was even though I knew about the problem, was still pretty stunning and certainly uh, kind of put me back on my heels in terms of reminding us that these systems really aren't search engines. They don't know what's real. Why are they set up this way? Yeah, I mean, they're stunningly good, actually, at, at, at generating text and replicating structure. Um, what they've been trained on is 
pretty much everything we've ever written on the internet, you know, up until 2021, at least in the case of GPT-4. And basically all they're doing is, is completing a sentence. Um, that's what they are and pattern matching. And so they don't really have a model of how the world works or anything. They don't have understanding you know, they're finishing the sentence um, in a way that makes sense. That only fools us into thinking they're more like search engines. I mean, there was a law professor recently who was accused of sexual harassment, you know, through ChatGPT. And it was uh, based on him being a faculty member at a place he wasn't a faculty member, a trip he never went on, an article that was never written, things like that. And so sounds good. It sounds right. Um, but it, it definitely it isn't always. So if it's just spewing out crap, then isn't that <laughs> in a weird way, a bit hopeful for creative types like us that we can point to it and go, look, you know, this is this is nonsense. I mean, there's always the potential to improve it. And a lot of what it puts out there is actually quite useful. And for somebody who's not an expert in a particular field, I think this is particularly useful as kind of like a tutor, especially when it's been fine tuned um, by like the Khan Academy has an amazing um, AI tutor that, that they've developed. It can be honed into a good tool. We can't assume that whatever we're interacting with is going to be uh, is going to be accurate. I, I guess one thing about AI that it's it's trying to do its best job of replicating what the most ordinary writer or person, you know, creating content would say. You wrote a recent column in Fast Company about some of these questions, and you mentioned a guy who he used uh, ChatGPT and one of the image generators. I think it was Dolly which is also from OpenAI, he coached the system to write a whole children's book and illustrate it in like a couple of days. I think what's striking here is we're probably going to see a lot of that kind of content. Yeah, I mean, um, and it's interesting. I've been, I've been um, playing around with these models too and, and thinking, oh, this is wonderful. This will help me. I can uh, maybe construct a syllabus or something like that more efficiently. And it's very good at creating structure and it's very good at like creating something um, better than you could if you were a non-expert. But if you're actually really good at what you do, um, I, I think we need to be really thoughtful about like not wasting our time because I think in, in some cases it's actually easier to, to do it ourselves. Years ago when my kids were little, I think just about the most joyful aspect of parenting was reading children's books to our kids there are a vast number of kids' books out there, but there's a huge difference between something that's really magical and inspiring and funny and, and just putting out a children's book. It's not as if, at least yet, generative AI is going to replace something that's original. We'll interact with it to create you know, new products or, or new creative works, um, maybe, maybe better than what we could have done before, um, or maybe just quicker than we could have done where they're a useful tool, they're helpful, and on we go, you know, creating uh, as, as, we, as, as we like to do. Let's talk a little bit about trust. You recently did a, uh, were a co-author on a really interesting academic paper and it had this intriguing headline, Humans Judge Algorithms Nudge. And it looked at how people in the workplace trust AI systems or trust automated systems that acquire information about their behavior. What did you find? Yeah, I mean, that was some, some great work led by uh, Rajni Ravindran. And what we found was that even though throughout history we've, we've wanted to avoid surveillance, we don't like being monitored, all that kind of stuff. 
um, we're more willing to do that when it's uh, done by technology, where we remove the human from the process because when a watch or an app on my computer is, is tracking me, I don't feel judged in the same way that I feel judged if somebody's looking over my shoulder. So, so we found that across a, no, a number of different studies. And um, what that does is it kind of lays the foundation for us to actually give a lot of those data that then can be fed into AI systems, which we may have a very different reaction to. You wrote about this and, and said, we love our Fitbits and our smartwatches, but hate the idea of an insurance company using the data to set prices or predict health outcomes. It sounds very much like most of us have contradictory responses to software and to AI and automated systems. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely do. You know, there's even something called um, the privacy paradox, which is the idea that we say we want privacy on the one hand, um, but then we don't behave in that same way on the other hand. And so um, there's a few different reasons for that. We're really aware uh, when we're using these apps and products, we're aware of the benefits and how convenient they are we uh, also feel like there's a low perceived probability of experiencing harm. Um, like when we first started using Facebook, for example, we weren't like, what, what could possibly come from that? Or when we're putting in a simple prompt to chat GPT, what could go wrong with that? We, we, don't, we don't think about the harm. We're exposed to negative consequences only after we've long, you know, started using these products and relied on them. We're speaking with Nate Fast, who is a professor of management and organization at the USC Marshall School of Business in Los Angeles. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. And now back to our interview. We've heard a lot of dystopian forecasts about the impacts of artificial intelligence. Some warn that AI could make us less human. Elon Musk is among those calling for a pause in some AI research. I mean, that may be too extreme. But what would you advise Google, Microsoft, and other technology firms to do about AI? What I would say is adopt the principle of putting safety over profit and and really digging into what that principle means, putting safety over profit. Um, so I think that's the most important thing they can do. And I think the, that, that pause letter um, was kind of misunderstood. I think it, all of these efforts to try to um, raise the public awareness of kind of like the seriousness of, of these systems, I think are is good. And we can kind of debate what are the right um, responses. A lot of people are also arguing that we need some kind of government regulation here to keep AI uh, within certain guardrails. As the more libertarian-ish member of this podcast, that the idea that that it, of the, the government regulating any fast-moving technology uh, is makes me nervous because <laughs> more often than not, they're going to get it wrong, and yet. There are, are concerns here, and I think the fact that some of the smartest people who've worked in this field 
are some of the people expressing these concerns, it gives me a little bit of pause. Is there an area for government to step in here? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you um, on your initial reaction, um, but I do think that in this case, government needs to be involved. This stuff is too powerful for it to not, but I'm not necessarily super optimistic about what that will look like. And so it's a challenge. Um, I think one of the problems is that these companies are competing with each other. And so they feel this uh, need to be in a race and putting out products that are maybe not ready to be put out. And, you know, there's an AI basically chatbot on Snapchat that befriends, you know, young kids. Um, and, you know, so we're, we're really experimenting with, with kids. I don't think that should be, should be going on to the degree that it is. And, and so I think government involvement is important. Um, one other quick example is, is pharmaceuticals and drugs. You know, we have a lot of regulation about the, the powerful drugs that we put out. Can you imagine putting out a drug into society and saying like, hey, look what it did to that person or look what it did to these people over here. Like maybe we should use it for this purpose. Um, no, we have to identify what the purpose is ahead of time. We have to test it. We're accountable uh, to all of those things. Are we conducting a massive experiment on young people with technologies like generative AI? And are there special questions that should be raised about regulating or making the internet safer for people who have not formed an opinion of the world and who are vulnerable? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I think that's why I really like the principle of safety um, over profit. I mean, it is an experiment. I think it's an experiment with all of us, uh, not just young people, but I think young people are more maybe vulnerable. Like you said, they haven't developed a, a model of the world yet. We have a huge responsibility that I think we're behind on right now in terms of protecting um, our young people. I don't think social media is something that's healthy um, for kids to be using. And so I think that's one low hanging fruit that we can kind of like begin to tackle um, especially as we add generative AI to the mix. Earlier in the interview, Richard, you mentioned the Industrial Revolution, the revolution in ideas and communications that came with the printing press. Nate, is there an inflection point, to use that overused piece of jargon, in human history that you would look to as something that might be a little bit analogous to what we might be facing here with the the sudden explosion of AI? Well, I think the introduction of electricity is, is a good example. It really fundamentally changed how we do most of the work that we do. And I think AI has the potential to change at least a lot of the different tasks and a lot of the work um, that we do in the same way that electricity really uh, transformed as well. So. So you think about like in the workforce, if you drive around New England, you find these old mills in every town or city that had a river that ran downhill steeply enough to be dammed up and to run some kind of a a turbine or a water wheel to power all those machineries. Once you could just power a factory with electricity, you could build them anywhere. And all those towns got hollowed out. Many are still struggling to this day. You know, that might be the kind of example of a a shift in work patterns that no one really anticipates when a superior technology comes along. 
Yeah, that's right. And so I think we're in a phase where it's basically all hands on deck. I mean, we all need to be, uh, I think, uh, actively experimenting with these tools and kind of having conversations across uh, sectors to try to better understand what are the implications. But we have to do it in real time. So what fascinates you the most about the impact of, of technology and specifically AI on human behavior? One is, um, you know, it's it's the the capacity of technology to change us. And I think Nietzsche, you know, had a quote, uh, which is that our, our writing instruments are also working on our thoughts. Um, and he apparently, you know, um, stories are that he changed his writing style um, after he started using a typewriter. And he had this like amazing typewriter that he got a fancy typewriter because his eyes didn't allow him to actually write. And so he would close his eyes and, and type. And his writing took on a more like pithy and kind of a terse uh, tone. I think that's a really interesting kind of example, whether it's fully true or not, um, of how, you know, the tools and technologies that we use can kind of change us in very subtle ways. And so I think actually one of the most fascinating things to me is the subtle ways that are maybe hard to decipher in, um, you know, in today's world that kind of like shift an entire generation of, of people and how they do their work. I think the second thing that fascinates me about the psychology of technology is how different people can respond to technologies um, and, and maybe in, in some cases how the same person can respond in almost opposite ways to these same technologies. Um, I, I think that's really fascinating. What makes you optimistic, if you are? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm optimistic by choice. Um, I think we should, as leaders, really choose the, the you know, path of optimism. And what makes me optimistic is the incredible you know, creativity and resilience that humanity has showed you know, throughout history. That being said, I'm certainly not blindly optimistic, and I'm, I am very concerned about uh, the developments, for sure. Nate Fast, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Nate Fast, speaking with us from Los Angeles. Coming next, our recommendation. Jim, you have a recommendation this time, and it's it's about war, right? Yeah. I've discovered this family of podcasts from the Modern War Institute. That's an independent outfit connected with West Point. And this particular podcast that I'm recommending is called The Spear. And it's one-on-one -on -one interviews with officers who've been deployed in war zones around the world, just telling stories about things that happen in their deployment. They could be very simple, very focused, but they give you a real picture of what it's like to be, say, a young lieutenant suddenly, uh, you know, through your training and, and deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq. But you learn a lot about what it's like to to serve in the military, what it's like to lead about these people's commitment to their teams and to their mission. And I, I just find it very interesting and very moving. What's the name of the podcast again? The, it's from the Modern War Institute, and it's called The Spear. Thanks, Jim. Next, our very short conversation. Let's see if we can make it short, okay? <laughs> um, Always hard. So my, my first thought on this with, with artificial intelligence is that we really need to do more shows about it. This 
podcast was prompted by your experience of researching at least one, maybe more articles. I know that you're a very busy uh, journalist. What was the concern that was very specifically raised by ChatGPT for you? Well, it's, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about in the intro, which is you have to really understand the difference between a system that is designed to go out in the world and find relevant content that might be useful for, for you, and then you can assess its validity, and one that's trying to replicate the creation of content without any real concern for accuracy or or any way for you to assess its accuracy in fact it's an incredibly good simulation of authoritative sounding content and most of the time it's pretty darn good but if you don't know much about your field you don't know what the edge cases are if you do know a lot about your field as nate said you don't have as much need for an ai system to do your writing for you and that's something that we need to be be cautious about. I, I, at the same time, I think it's a very useful tool for a lot of things in some very simple ways. It might, if let's say you're a contractor and you don't speak great English, but you're great at your job. If you need to con- send emails to your clients, ChatGPT could help you craft really good English uh, emails, and that would help you in your business. It could be a leveler uh, in our society in some ways. You know, we always worry about technology knocking people out of jobs, but it could help some people do their jobs better in ways that give them uh, a chance to stand on an, kind of an even playing field. Oh, I love to end on a hopeful note. I know there's a lot of things that we we need to be worried about, but, but that's <laughs> we not didn't a bad get into my Chinese dystopian uh, <laughs> uh, nightmare of constant surveillance and social credit systems. I I've got a column coming out on that topic in Commentary Magazine. Should be out in a few days. We'll certainly link to our listeners on the newsletter. All you have to do is is sign up for it at howdowefixit.me and uh, you can find out about what Jim is writing about and why he's justifiably concerned. Yeah, if you go to commentary a lot, you might hit the paywall, but I think they let you go in and read a few things for free up front. Very generous of them. (laughs) This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for mostly nonprofits on uh, various ranges of topics. Uh, If you're interested, check us out at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.